Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Hollywood Podcast, covering the latest in film, TV, streaming, and social media. I'm your host, Max Geshwind. Stay tuned for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. And I'm so excited to have with me for this week, Wayne Pashley, who is the sound designer and um, mixer on the new film Elvis, directed by Baz Luhrmann, starring Tom Hanks and Austin Butler, who plays the titular character of Elvis Presley. Um, Wayne, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure, Max. Thank you for having me on. This is wonderful. So I would love to start from the beginning of um, your involvement in this project. Could you talk to me a little bit about those first conversations you had with Baz and what that vision he had for the audio was that he communicated to you? Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, it was uh, after we finished The Great Gatsby some time ago, um, Baz had muted the idea of you know, making this film on Elvis Presley at the time. And, you know, uh, of course, with Baz, it, it takes five years before anything comes around. And I always wondered whether it would really happen. And, of course, I was really excited by that prospect because I grew up loving Elvis's music and his movies and everything. And when it, when it came around and I got the call that Baz wanted to come to Sydney, Australia, to uh, have a chat about... Um, the upcoming uh, biopic, I guess you call it. The uh, uh, he came, we had lunch, and it was really interesting. I hadn't read the script at that point at all, and he basically sort of kind of started pitching the movie to me. <laughs> and we had uh, several people in the room. Uh, Warner Brothers was here, and um, the producers and people like that. And and I was mesmerized by. The, the, the kind of the pitch and how he said that, you know me, I don't make movies. I make opera. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I make theatre. And, and I went, right. And I said, okay, so this is exciting. So what slice of Elvis's life are you going to hone in on? And he said, all of it. <laughs> and at that moment, I thought, how on earth are you going to truncate Elvis Presley's life story uh, in a, a movie length, you, you know, situation. But uh, so my head started reeling. I started thinking about, you know, uh, what what does this entail? You know, from Elvis's uh, music, obviously the crowds, the you know, the the cars, the all the all the props of the of the period from um, the fifties through the sixties through the seventies. And thinking about the political landscape of that time, you know, how is this going to all play out? Uh, so, yeah, my head was spinning off my shoulders at that point, but I was so, so excited. And, um, and basically we wound up the, the, um, the session with him saying that this, is, this it will be the great American operatic tragedy is what we're making. And uh, the... There's several things he put forward. He said, I want it to be triumphant, emotional, gorgeous, and awesome. <laughs> you know, and, and said uh, that, you know, he wanted the, the whole thing to be like a weave, you know, of music, uh, sound effects, um, 
the dialogue, all that sort of to, to weave this whole sonic architecture and, and basically tell the, the, the sonic life of Elvis Presley. That's how it was pitched to me. And so it was kind of terrifying. Right. No, yeah, <laughs> and that, definitely. And following up on what you said when he communicated to you that he wanted the life and career of Elvis to be told from an operatic scale, I think I read somewhere that he also wanted it to be Shakespearean in a sense. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, you know, the, the tragedy side of it, the romance side of it, you know, it's like a, and because, you know, it was going to be written from the perspective, the, the, the script, after I finally read it, the script was from the perspective of Colonel Tom Parker. Now, I didn't know really much about Colonel Tom Parker at all. And, um, you know, Tom Hanks came on board to play the role, and as you know, and, you know, I kind of thought, well, how does this work in and how are we, how are we going to allow the audience to accept that it's not Elvis's upfront storytelling, it's actually through the Colonel's perspective. And like the Shakespearean nature of that, it, it was like a Faustian pact in a way between, you know, Elvis, the show, and the Colonel, yeah. the biz. Right. You know, so you had this, you know, um, this kind of mystical relationship that had to had to unfold throughout. He likened it to uh, like an infrastructure, I guess, of Amadeus, you know, with um, yeah. Salieri and uh, telling the story of how he viewed Mozart at the time. And I thought, well, that's awesome because that's one of my favourite films, frankly, and, um, and I, I just love it. And uh, and that's kind of in many ways about, I suppose, jealousy and you know, things like that. That you know that that film. But th this one, this one was so dense. And the the truth about Colonel Tom Parker is very hard to nail down. You know, I've read some. We we immersed ourselves in all the stories, and I read the books and did all that stuff. And and it's, he's quite mystical in many ways. And and. You know, like there's some people that actually said he he believed because of his carnival background and all that, that that he all, almost had like mentalist skills where he could, you know, mystically make you pay the money, <laughs> you know, and he believed he could see through to your soul. So yeah. he was quite a character, you know. Um, and so that mysticism was sort of seen in the movie too, sort of what he thought he was able well, to that's have. Right. Yeah. Well, that's right. As the unreliable narrator and all that stuff. And, yeah. and the fact that it did start, the movie starts in the nineties with, with, from the heart attack. Right. I mean, honestly, the way the film started when uh, throughout the process of, uh, of the editorial, after it's all been shot and the editorial process, Baz, Baz is very iterative in his approach to filmmaking. Like the script is one thing. Post-production is quite another you know, and he he would take the Colonel's character and honestly, there were times where we'd have to continually catch up both, both uh, you know, with the visuals and the and the emotional sort of shifts uh, that, that was going on through voiceover and, and things where, where honestly, you know, there was sequences with the Colonel that will absolutely freak you out. Now, what happened was there was this whole opening that Baz wanted for the film, and it was called Carnival Time. So the basically the colonel, when he uh, uh, gets put on morphine, 
And you sort of see it a bit in the movie as it is now, where he goes on a morphine trip, you know, and he and from the hospital enters the what we call the ghostly casino. Uh, and and that's where the story started to unfold. Well, that opening was absolutely wild when we uh, were working on it. And, of course, it got screened at test audiences and stuff like that. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the audiences, you know, had a certain response to it. But, honestly, Baz held on to this carnival time sequence for many, many, many months where you had Tom Hanks actually did a rap you know, mm. inside wow. a snow globe and like tightrope walking and elephants and you, you just name it. You know, it was absolutely crazy. I hope one day Baz will complete that vision in, in a longer way. You know. I was just going to say, I heard somewhere, I think Baz was quoted as saying that he does have a four-hour version of the film that yeah. maybe well, one, one day. Yeah, well, what happened? Well, I actually saw it. It was four and a half hours. Oh, wow. And in fact... That's what they say, four and a half hours. I reckon it was closer to five. Oh, but okay. anyway, um, yeah, I was asked to go. Baz was in Australia, up in Queensland, um, like it's an hour, hour flight away from Sydney up north. That's where he was stationed through post-production. He had his um, uh, this wonderful sort of building where they, they set it all up for him for the post-production. I was in Sydney and through the pandemic, I, you know, we got shut down with the borders and blah, blah, blah. But, um, but anyway, I got to manage to get up there before the borders shut down. And uh, he invited me up there to see the, the four and a half hour version of the film. We did have an intermission. And, uh, and then by the end of it, I'm not kidding you, it was so incredibly emotionally exhausting that everyone, there was like a, probably about 20 of us there with visual effects and all the post team, uh, yeah, we had to go for a walk just to shake wow. it off. Wow. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, one day I really hope that, you know, Warner Brothers will allow it to be done. Obviously, it's a big exercise because, you know, even though there was all the practical sets and all that stuff, there's still the visual effects element, you know, uh, in, in like the international hotel and things like that that would have to get all the chandeliers in the distance. Yeah. And blah, blah, blah. So as soon as you expand it open, it's quite an expensive process to do it. But he shot all those performance pieces. He shot them in their entirety in terms of the actual songs. And they are something else. I mean, yeah, and that, I'm just picking one thing. There's many, many uh, uh, sequences that hit the cutting room floor, which was absolutely um, heartbreaking at the yeah. time. Well, when, what- yeah. I was just going to say, well, Warner Brothers does have a history now of um, letting their directors release their <laughs> cuts. We had Justice League with the Snyder cut last year. So well, hopefully right. they could do that with Baz and um, let his true original well, vision out there for well, the public to say. Yeah, well, strangely enough, like uh, I worked with Baz on uh, the movie Australia mm-hmm. uh, with Hugh Jackman and, um, and Nicole Kidman. Yeah. And actually right now I'm working on the six part miniseries. Uh, of that movie and it's it works really well in a six-part format nice you know? yeah it's really fabulous and all the stuff that got lost on the day and i'm going back this was 15 years ago yeah. this was made. and uh, all this wonderful material is all now back in yeah right it's um now i have a question your filmography is very iconic it's a mix of animation and also live action i think of happy feet lego movie but then also Mad Max, which won the Sound Oscars and Gods of Egypt. But a core tenet of your work is your collaborations with Baz, which goes back decades. Strictly yeah. Ballroom, 
Australia <laughs> and more recently with um with Great Gatsby. Um, can you talk to me about what it's like working with Baz versus working with someone newer? Is there a special shorthand that you have with Baz that's unique to Baz versus other directors that you work with on other projects? Well, that's a really great question. Look, uh, yeah, as you say, you know, Baz and I go back 30 years now. Yeah. Uh, I still remember the day when I first met him on Strictly Ballroom and I was sort of yeah. nervous and you know, you know, going into the meeting, I was a lot younger, of course, then. And the, the um, you know, uh, we started out uh, with Strictly Ballroom. It was the the cut that I saw was actually on VHS tape. And there was, I think, five, five tapes. And I had to stick them in the machine. I could not wait to eject the number one and stick in number two and keep going. It was just sensational. Uh, and I thought, wow, this guy who I never met, first film that he, he, he directed, can't wait to meet him. Anyway, when uh, I'd started doing the design on it and I had to record loop group crowds for all the crowd sequences, uh, Baz came in. And that's, not, that's, that's unusual for a director to come to a loop group recording. Mm-hmm. And he came in and he put himself into the crowds for an extra number. And, and I was blown away by his directorial skills and revving up the, you know, the, um, the cast of the right. loop group. It was amazing. So that's where it started, you know, um, as, as on, a, on a wider sort of, you know, top view of it, I, I think that Baz, he's a master storyteller. He's so different to everybody else, um, but he allows you into a very magical filmmaking world you know something that I've not experienced with anyone else when you enter Baz's sort of uh you know his storytelling sort of visionary you know maximalism you you get so sucked into the the journey that that uh not only myself but my entire crew who were just sensational you end up by getting so engrossed in it where you know, you start doing such heavy research and, you know, getting all the authenticity of the sounds and because Baz will require that, you know, and, uh, but he opens the door for you, you know, and it's, it's hard that he, you know, it's not, it's not a walk in the park by any, any stretch. I mean, you've got to perform, but like I, I talk to people, you know, where, you know, I was recording on um, Australia. Well, we're right up in the outback of Australia and I was up there for a few weeks recording all the environments. And I sat down one night with um, this, this fellow, this French man, and, and uh, I was sitting having dinner. And I said, oh, hi, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm the hairdresser. I went, oh. I said, fantastic. And, uh, and I said, have you worked with Baz before? And he said, yes, I've worked on everything, you know, and uh, that he's done. And Baz calls, I come. I have many salons in Paris and I just shut them all and I come. And he said, I'll walk over hot coals for him. And I actually think that's a true statement for most of the crew. I mm-hmm. really do. Yeah. And um, yeah, because like he's a visionary and he comes in such with such passion and you, you can't help but get sucked up. As opposed to, look, all other directors are different, you know, and you just have to, you know, pivot your thinking you know, I have to, uh, you know, if I'm working on it, I've got a few low-budget movies coming up later in the year and you know that you can't really, <laughs> yeah, as much as you want to take on the 
the Baz mentality onto these other projects. You just have to kind of like shape yourself to 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 the reality of it. And, but you'll you'll really try to take what Baz has given you and and, and put it into whatever's in front of you next. You know, and and treat you know, be it low budget, medium budget, or high budget, treat everybody the same and um, and the projects the same with the same love. You know. So I think that's what it is with with Baz. It's it's um, it's a world like no other, and I'm feel very blessed to have um, had this opportunity. Yeah. yeah, you've worked on um, projects in the past like Gatsby or Happy Feet, where music is definitely a core tenet yeah. of what those stories are about. But correct me if I'm wrong. I think this is one of your first actual straight musicals that features a lot of singing in them um can you talk about sort of the sound design process how it's different working on musicals or working on singing versus you know projects where it's just yeah dialogue well, yeah it's a bit of a big deal because of course there's a lot of technical challenges yeah that's yeah. as it starts you know so the first thing you have to consider is all right you know we've now got uh austin butler playing elvis presley okay let's just taking that example and and you've got to then go through all the departments how this is going to how this is going to work. Uh, so you go through the testing process, which is which we did. And in December two thousand and nineteen, I uh, went up to the studio up in Queensland. We had camera, so we had Mandy Walker there um, setting up with camera. We had a little mini sort of very basic set. Austin met Austin for the first time. Um, uh, this is obviously before the shutdown after yeah. Tom Hanks got ill. And, um, you know, uh, what we did was, you know, we did the early uh, uh, research into the microphones that Elvis used, you know, throughout the periods. Uh, and we had an incredible props, a musical props department that uh, collected all the sort of authentic gear both amplifiers, guitars, microphone stands, the works, and the microphones uh, that were all restored. So vintage microphones all so got restored and working. So that was great. So we had all that bit. The music department was incredible, led by Elliot Wheeler, the composer, had a wonderful team there. So they'd been working on the film for five years, right, the, the, the music team. So they were recording in Nashville in Studio A where Elvis you know, uh, recorded so much and down in the South with choirs and everybody else. So they had been building the, the musical side of it. So that was a known quantity. We came in, um, we had David Lee, who was our um, production sound mixer. So he was, the, he was our recordist on set uh, and he had a 32 channel setup where we had the music uh, coming in for playback and then we had all the microphones for the next, so we had 16 and 16, 16 in, 16 recording, and we did the big test day. So once we get through that, so we're checking sync. So we tried playback first. So we just like, you know, in earpiece miming. Okay, great, camera's rolling, we're in sync. Next we went, okay, now we're gonna get Austin to sing, with playback, but also sing. We did that, we were lock solid, that's great. Then Baz came in after lunch and said, uh, now I want to try live. And so we brought in um, a bunch of musicians. So we had drums, a double bass and guitar, came in with Austin, shut down playback and recorded live. 
that told us everything because Baz at that minute went, we're going to do more live than not. So now your, situa now your situation is quite different because when you start talking like that, it's a bit of a big deal. Microphones, setting up big band sequences, all that stuff. Now, that's how that starts. So you, you, you hope to God that in the, in the process through editorial and, and the, the uh, dailies that are being shot, everything is recorded. It will be criminal not to get it right, you know, if they're especially live recording and, um, and, and, and working through the editorial process. So really it's a big technical challenge. So what we then did, so once we knew that we could, uh, in the 50s, it was all Austin. In the 60s, at the 68 comeback special, it was half Elvis, but kind of like probably more than half Elvis and then uh, uh, interspersed with Austin. So simultaneously, same microphones, all that. And then through the 70s, it was mainly Elvis because we had stems from RCA of those these recordings. But Austin was also singing. So all the breathing work, all the, all the dialogue work, same microphone, it was now all weaving and merged. When it comes to the sound effects of that stuff, now that we're looking at having to harmonise everything. So if we're on the streets of Beale Street, for example, where you've got the car horns, the cars, everything is now pitched to be in tune. So it's all like one big fusion of, of the musical element and the sound and the environment, you know? Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that the microphones and the equipment you used were actually from the time of from Elvis performing to create that authenticity in the sound. Correct. Yes, so it so that it wouldn't sound modern. It would sound like from the time that exactly. Elvis actually was performing. Look, that's right. To make it sort of seamless that that so you felt like you were in the audience at the time. Now, obviously, the crowds had a lot to do with that as well, because the crowds had to be completely immersive. You know, we're in a Dolby Atmos situation. So when you've got like, you know, you know, a, 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 a master that is stereo from NBC at the comeback special, that was really tough to make a stereo kind of pretty rough sounding recording back in 1968 <clears throat> to make it immersive. The crowds helped a lot with that. Uh, we had um, uh, Barbara Harris casting, you know, uh, uh, pulled together so many uh, crowd sessions for us to recording for each of the sequences. Uh, they were just amazing. And with the right accents and whether it was down south, you know, we had recordings in, in the you know, down in New Orleans at the time, we did a lot of stuff in LA, all pandemic wise, it all had to be done all hours of the night and things. But that that sort of um, um, sort of immersion and, and, and sort of feel to make you feel like you had just witnessed Elvis Presley was was paramount. So the crowds were crucial in all this. And particularly when in the 50s, in that first one, when he sings um, um, uh, Baby Let's Play House at the Hayride, and the first time we hear those screaming girls, you know, nothing had ever happened like that before. As kind of silly as it might sort of appear now to young people, like that was a real big cultural shift. And that, that sexual awakening of these young women to this kind of almost like an androgynous guy with makeup yeah. and everything 
was crazy. So we had these uh, um, women come in that we called the Scream Queens, and they were something else because, and we had to replace, you know, a lot of those. We Some of them were from set, but it was kind of pretty chaotic. So all that stuff was done in concert with the music, the timing of the music, the timing of the edit. It was quite quite a big deal to, you know, the weaving that had to take place. I was just going to ask you about the crowds because I think along with the music, the sound of the crowd screaming is probably the second most important <laughs> sound in this because along with the music, the s- sound of the screaming was also, um, you know, reason for his ascension into stardom and being a heartthrob. Oh. And it's something that I think people knew about the screaming girls, you know, on like the Ed Sullivan show and things yes. like that going into this. But the fact that when you're watching it, it's not simply just 10,000 people screaming, but you really have these intimate moments with yeah. the people screaming in those scenes where you have, you know, close-up shots of certain girls in the audience. It really creates that um, sort of one-on-one relationship that you have with the screaming girls. And it's not just this, um, you know, far removed, distant, loud, you know, 10,000 no. person screaming audience. Well, it was um, probably one of the, look, aside from the authenticity of the, we recorded all the vehicles and all that stuff and all the, you know, the props, the guitars, the amps, the everything else, the crowds were absolutely fundamental. Yeah. In this because it had to build on every sequence. You had to feel the energy coming off it. You had this, um, you know, the, 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 the hunger, for for the and it wasn't just the women it was also the men (laughs) you know the hunger for this guy it was unprecedented um you know this sort of thing before the Beatles and everything and and you know it it had to uh, uh you know uh emotionally shift and build and build with with the rhythms of the song and the edit now the other trick was is when you hit um in the fifties, also when you hit uh, the Rustwood Stadium sequence, where where um, it's a musical weave uh, from from Beale Street at night in the uh, in the club handy to the Rustwood Stadium uh, down in Memphis, and the Bill when he gets up on stage, and then you've got the segregationist plot as well with the black and white sort of segregation line. You had these, you know, the um, a conservative senator, you know. A, a, a couple of miles over in, in, in the Memphis Music Bowl where Elvis is here. You had this incredible build of drama going on there. But the trick was, is don't, uh, what Baz called um, uh, crowd fatigue. We had to be very careful not to absolutely overblow. You know, when you've got 10,000 strong in the, in the Russwood Stadium, sure, you can make it go, ah. But in this situation, each thing had to hand over to the next cut. Each thing had to just build and build and subtle. And it was a really, really careful orchestration in the architecture of that because, you know, the temptation is, you know, let's just go for it. Let's just, you know, uh, uh, go for the thing. Because, like, I remember with with, um, Bohemian Rhapsody, the Live Aid concert is like that, that sticks in my mind as some of the the best stadium crowds in recent years that I've heard. So that was the aim in a sequence like that, to get it to that level, but don't start at that level. 
don't let don't don't get that crowd fatigue as Baz Baz called it. Um, you know, like happening. So that so yeah, it it was it was you know very carefully architectured throughout. You know, and um and the crowds were probably one of the most the, the one of the heaviest cans to to lift. Honestly. Yeah. And there yeah. definitely was not any crowd fatigue. And unlike the Bohemian sequence, which I agree was just amazing, you didn't have any of that intimacy like what you have in Elvis with those crowd scenes, which which was great to, to have. Um, oh, I wanted oh. to I wanted to move on and ask. Um, you touched on this earlier, but Austin singing versus Elvis singing, or oh. maybe a third option, which was a combination of the two. Um, mm-hmm. Can you touch a little bit about on? Um, how much is Austin, how much is Elvis, and how much is sort of a combination of both? I, I heard that it was sort of the early 50s stuff where Elv- real Elvis recordings were more unreliable and hard to find that was focused solely on Austin versus 68 special, of course, in the 70s Las Vegas shows, which was pretty much actually Elvis. Is that true? Can you talk a little bit that's about true. that? Okay. That, that, well, that's true. Look, honestly, um, Austin is exceptional. And he he um, you know absolutely embodied Elvis Presley. Now, not just in his uh, singing, but also in his speaking uh, voice. It was like amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, as I said, that early tests we did at the end of that afternoon when he did a live version. Um, I think it was uh, Blue Suede Shoes at, at that point of this on the test day. I honestly went away going, "Whoa." He, I just witnessed Elvis Presley. It was just, it was crazy and everyone felt it. So so it was a no-brainer to have Austin go and record those early 50s entirely, in, in its entirety. And um, that really that really helped drive the sort of like the, the feel and to throw people immediately into the character to sort of say, okay, am I watching an, an Elvis impersonator or am I watching Elvis Presley? And I think you pre- pretty quickly, you know, which, which, which was actually blew us all away. Pre- pretty quickly you saw Austin as Elvis and honestly working on the film, it got to a point where I'd forgotten who was, is he Elvis? You know what I mean? It's like, which is the real Elvis here? So, so that were the early 50s definitely were all Austin. As I say, the, the the 68 comeback was a merge because quite often, in, even though that stuff from NBC at the time was, you know, pretty good, the musical overlays uh, helped build it for um, the, the, today's cinema, you know, sonically. Uh, so we had sort of like extra material within the band. And then also Elvis went off mic quite a lot. Real Elvis went mm, off mic God. during that stuff. So Austin filled the gaps. Uh, in all that, plus all the breathing and all the energy was coming live from Austin throughout. So uh, there was that. And, of course, then the dialogue crossover. Then, yes, in the the 70s, in the the Vegas stuff, it is primarily Elvis, but because we had quite wide stems available for us, stems meaning you had the drums separate to the the Sweet Temptations, separate to Elvis's vocals, separate to the, the brass or whatever. Now, the, the, the music team did add uh, to help build the size of the sequences and to sometimes give it a modern flair, as did Austin, you know, in certain parts of it. 
because you know whether it was Baz was speeding it up like speeding up the track or whatever you know as well so there'd be there'd be times when we'd have to you know give it a little extra punch but primarily it's Elvis Presley I would say in those 70s gigs it, it'd be 90 percent 95 percent pending the song uh it was Elvis himself so um yeah, you know, that's uh, the, but that, that was the beauty of Austin because he fell, he was a secret weapon, you know. Even in post when he came in and he did um, like runs of, of, of breathing and, and this energy and even down, to, even down to the way if he heard himself from the production, if, if, he, if he laughed, let's say, he would pick on it immediately and say, that's not how Elvis laughed. So he would be in an ADR room, pull out his laptop, go to his massive library of reference and find where Elvis laughed and he would play it and repeat it, play it and repeat it. (laughs) You just go, this is insane. Yeah, yeah. really exceptional. He was the secret weapon to make you believe that, that really, you know, that just for those few hours that you really believe that Elvis was, you were watching Elvis Presley. I want to touch on one of my favorite scenes, which is the final scene, Unchained Melody, where Austin's sitting at the piano, but it cuts away to the real Elvis. Can you talk about sort of the sound process behind that? Because it's Austin, but then it's um, Elvis. Is it simply Elvis the entire time? And It is. uh, is, Yes, it is Elvis singing the entire time. Uh, That one is, that was sort of, that was always intended to be in the film, right? And it was always, uh, it's a heartbreaker every time I see mm-hmm. it, even, even today I see it. Like even when the, we had the crowd sessions and they saw it for the first time, you know, we had like you know, 18, you know, loop group is just in tears, you know. But there were the, the, it's a bit like the comeback special and an Unchained Melody. You kind of didn't want to... Uh, as Elvis's legacy that we were hoping to protect, you know, throughout the process, you didn't want to really muck around with that. You didn't want to, you know, manipulate it really because it's very well known. It's one, it's really, it's Elvis's last performance, you know, and, and yeah, Austin was all made up with the, the prosthetics and everything. And that went to great lengths of, um, of uh, getting the set right and and the look, but but Austin did sing it. it. It is it is available. Like he actually sang it as well as the playback. So at the end of the day, El, um, Austin does exist. But we decided to go with Elvis Presley at that point because, uh, again, you wanted to end the film with the man himself you know, and to remind the audience what an exceptional um, musician he was. And by then it becomes a tribute to him because then it cuts to photos, like photographs of the real. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And like with, with all, even with the crowd stuff, you know, everything was matched. So on the live performance where the crowds did spike through or, or cheer for a certain um, part of the, the musical enterprise where, you know, he would build all the crowds are exactly matching where it was in the original performance, you know? So it was a, it was an absolute tribute to him. And um, I just didn't think that I didn't think there was any reason to, to go elsewhere. 
even though Austin, like in any of these songs, Austin really could have done it, you know, he could have, but yeah. So that was always the way. And, you know, there was a lot of, um, in that sequence, it was also difficult to know how far to go with finishing Colonel Tom Parker's story before he died, Mm -hmm. because you, you had to be very careful, you know, on what did kill Elvis. Was it him? Was it the drugs? Or was it us, the audience? Yeah. Or was it Elvis himself because of his love for us, you know, and, and, right. and ours in return? So it was a very d- delicate balance on how to sell that idea. You didn't want the audience going away saying, oh, what, so you're blaming us? For his death. Right. No, you yeah, know, it didn't have tr- that feeling. Tricky game, you know. There was a wonderful sequence just before we cut to uh, Austin on stage with that wonderful sequence that I hope Baz um, one day will put back in where the colonel is walking down the the um, ghostly casino at the very end and he says, the day he died, I rang Elvis's father, Vernon, and said, start printing records. Wow. And you go, and, and that got dropped because <laughs> it was pretty heavy, but it was like, wow. that And, and that's, that's true. Right, that's, yeah. It's, it's true. And you yeah. go, okay, so it's yeah. all about the... <laughs> You know, oh, well, well, it was. Yeah, I mean, the the way it ended was just so perfect. And like you said, just I, I could keep rewatching it. It was such a rewatchable scene. Oh, and, and, and Unchained Melody really does, I feel like, take on a new meaning by the end when you see his entire life before your eyes. You kind of don't listen to that song the same way again as it closes out um, his story. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please take a moment to subscribe to The Hollywood Podcast for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Max Geshwind. Thanks for listening. Listening.